Do not cause your brother to stumble. The verses we looked at last Lord's Day, 10 through 12, are a reminder to us that whatever differences there may be in ritual or ceremony or preferences in secondary things, we don't have the same ones the early church had necessarily, but we have our own differences of understanding and application and sometimes even in practice. And whatever these differences may be, it is before Christ that we are going to give an account. We're going to answer to him for our obedience or disobedience to his word, that we believe sound doctrine, that we, as John describes it in Revelation 14:12, kept the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. For it is before Christ that we are going to stand. And I hope over this past week that you have thought about this because nothing will soften us up more, kind of like a meat tenderizer. We are all the toughest cut of meat you can imagine, stubborn. Yet when we are reminded, I'm going to stand before the one who loved me and gave himself for me, that if we think about it rightly, we see it has a decided power to humble us, to soften us, and to make us devoted, not to, well, everyone needs to think like I do on this, or everyone really needs to do what I do on this, but to encourage one another. For the stronger in faith to avoid reproaching, arguing, debating with the weaker, and for the weaker not to judge the stronger. He picks up with a slightly different theme in verses 13 through 18. He says that we are not to judge one another any longer. Now, he clearly doesn't mean, as we can read throughout all of Scripture, that if there is immorality in the church or false doctrine, no, we have to make judgment on these as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, judge yourselves, and we are to hold one another accountable with meekness and tenderness, as Paul said in Galatians 6.1, watching ourselves lest we also be tempted. But on these secondary matters of ritual and ceremony and sometimes even practice, we are not to judge one another. He's already told us this. We are to be guided by a different judgment. Notice, to put no stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now, we need to be real careful about this because it's not the differences themselves that are the stumbling block. It's not, for example, as if the stronger brother who says it's okay to enjoy wine or beer in moderation, and yet the weaker brother's conscience won't let him do this. That is not the stumbling block. In other words, the weak can't go around screaming, stumbling block, stumbling block, stumbling block, because he heard that a stronger believer drank wine. That is not what Paul is saying. 
The stumbling block has already been described in this chapter. Verse 1, doubtful disputations. Verse 3, despising and reproaching. And verse 4, judgmentalism. In other words, I think primarily the admonition here is to the stronger. The stronger put a stumbling block, put in an occasion to fall before the weaker on these kinds of issues by arguing with them, by trying to change their minds about not the doctrine of the Trinity or the resurrection, but secondary issues of ritual ceremony and such that are an attempt on the part of the strong, hey, he needs to understand the liberty that we have in Christ. Okay, that's true. Paul is going to side with the strong on this issue. But we put a stumbling block when we argue with a weaker brother in a way that encourages him to sin against his conscience. Or, verse 3, that we despise him, that we look down on him, that we make him feel like a second-class citizen, because maybe his conscience won't allow him to enjoy certain things that Christ has left us free to enjoy. Or, of course, his judgmentalism here. Now, again, you wouldn't normally think of the weaker putting a stumbling block in front of the stronger. But when the weaker judge those and say, I can't believe that so-and-so was drinking wine, or I can't believe that so-and-so refrains from observing Christmas, or whatever the issue may be, like that, what happens to the stronger? He can become exasperated, frustrated. He can even intensify his pride. Well, I've got to defend myself here. So we've got a common duty rather than judging one another or standing as moral censors of one another to judge, not to argue with one another about secondary things or debate them with the intent, basically, of strong-arming someone mentally, emotionally, and intellectually to do the things, to believe things that their conscience would not allow them to do. Why is this? Three considerations, beginning in verses 14 through 16. Three reasons for this why we are not to primarily judge one another, but to determine, I'm not going to be an occasion for my brother to stumble. So first of all, Paul says in verse 14, For the Lord Jesus told him, nothing is unclean of itself. Now he doesn't mean immorality is clean. He's talking about the secondary things of food and drink, and observances of days, that these older ceremonial distinctions, the Lord Jesus has done away with them. Okay, so he sides with the strong. You're right. We have liberty in Christ. We can eat, we can drink, not observe days, observe days. Christ has made us free. But that's not the end of the matter. 
Notice what he says in the second half of verse 14. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now this looks like relativism, right? No. Remember, these are secondary things. These are not primary doctrines like the resurrection. These kinds of issues. But for a weaker brother, as an example... Maybe he grew up in a home where there was heavy, a heavy drinking father who abused his mother, so he is determined, I'm not going to touch this stuff. So you argue with him. You debate him. Maybe you tell him, hey, drinking a little alcohol, having a beer, is a badge of liberty in Christ. But because his conscience is weaker, tender to him, it's a sin. If I do this, he thinks, I will be sinning. Now, he's really not sinning, because sin is, of course, disobedience to God's commandments, not disobedience to other people's preferences or scruples. But his conscience is weak, and that is the point. The point is that we should allow love to direct and control our relationship toward one another, not, I believe this is right, I believe you should do this, I believe you should be like me. So Paul begins here by saying, now, why are we not to put a stumbling block before our brother? Well, one, because there are those in the midst of the congregation that do have a weaker conscience. So, then verse 15, we're going to destroy him with our meat. Here, Jewish believer, have some barbecued pork. No, I, I can't. Because for 2,000 years, we've not been doing that. And I hear what you're saying, but... You have to understand my conscience was shaped within a particular culture and religious context. And yes, as I said, I see what you're saying, but I just can't do it. So Paul says here, if your brother is grieved with your meat, are you walking in love? So our first reason of why we are not to judge one another on these secondary issues, that we are not to, by our argumentation and bad example, encourage folks to do things against their conscience, is because we are supposed to love. It is because love, listen, is more important than the enjoyment of our liberty in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 22. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. So if you want to drink, drink in your own home. Of course, if you are drunk, then you are sinning. If you drink too much, you are sinning because we have something better to be drunk on, which is the Holy Spirit. But if we're going to enjoy, if you're going to enjoy your liberty, enjoy it in your own home. Enjoy it maybe with a few others, 
not as a clique, because that is always dangerous and deadly too, because if your invitation list to a church function is determined by we invite people who drink, or we invite people who don't, or we invite people who do this, or we don't invite people who don't do that, then you have, a set, up, you have set up a clique which destroys the true liberty and love in Christ. Now he says, secondly, you need to remember the cross. Destroy him not with your meat for whom Christ died. Now, can we really destroy another brother? No. But the idea here is very serious. You know, the issues themselves, calendar days, meat, not meat, wine, not wine, the issues in themselves are not irrelevant, but there are matters of relative indifference on the whole scale of importance in terms of loving the Lord Jesus and serving him. But the way we go about either doing or not doing, drinking or not drinking, eating or not eating, observing or not observing, that is critical. It shows whether we really have the love of Christ in our hearts or whether it is all about me and having other people share my opinion. And then, of course, when we come to the consideration of destroying someone with our meat for whom Christ died, you've got to be kidding. You mean I'm going to crucify my brother on the altar of my meat or my wine or my beer, or if I really believe I can <clears throat> here, I can go here and I can do this and think this or not think this or go here and not do this? We're going to make those secondary issues reasons to undermine or weaken the faith of a brother? No. So how could this kind of thing happen? Well, imagine in the first century church, and you've got Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and the, Gen the Jewish believers bring their dietary scruples with them into the New Testament church. The Gentile believers are, what are you talking about? I can't eat pork. Okay, I'm seeing this condemned in the Old Testament, but Christ has come. and You really need to understand theology brother, better, brother. You really need to understand what Christ has accomplished. So the pressure is put on the Jewish believer. Somehow it becomes a condition of full acceptance within the body for him to go against his conscience. So he may look around after a while and say, am I a second class citizen in this congregation because I don't do this? I mean, is meat and drink these secondary issues the heart of what it means to be a disciple? Well, then maybe I'm not a disciple. Maybe I really don't know the Lord. There certainly doesn't seem to be any place for me in this body. Paul would say about this, you're destroying him. The Holy Spirit would say, you're destroying your brother. Christ died for him. 
but you are undermining his confidence and assurance by applying pressure on him to indulge in these secondary things against his conscience. By the way, just as an application here, and I'm going to direct this to you young people, maybe in your home certain things are permitted or not permitted to be done. You've grown up with this and you're used to it. Maybe your home tends to grant more latitude in these secondary things. So you get around some other young people on a playground or in a cafeteria or in the school parking lot. And you start hearing that their home is much stricter. And you are, what? You can't do this? And you can't do that? Well, my parents are godly too, and they say it's okay, or it's not okay, as the case may be. So you start putting the pressure on. Maybe there's a little bit of ostracizing, mockery, a little ridicule. And what happens maybe to this young person who was raised in a stricter home? When I was young, a friend of mine's father outlined, outlawed rock and roll music of any kind in the home. It was taboo. And there was a bit of ridicule that he faced if he didn't know who was the latest and the greatest in the music world. That had a very negative bearing on this young man and his faith for a couple of years. This is why we need to respect one another. That could have turned him totally away from the faith and against his parents. We will not always agree on certain issues. And again, our issues, as I have said several times over the last weeks, are not to eat or to not eat pork. That's not our question or to observe or not observe the Feast of Moons. That is not our question. But there are other things, other practical differences in the way we apply Scripture, where we think the Lord would have us go, the wisdom type of issues. We have to have respect. We need to remember that the important thing is that Christ died for us, And if each one of us is humble before the cross, we're not going to haul the conscience of our brother up before Gary's tribunal because the Lord Jesus already died for that brother, already died for that sister. So I don't want to do anything to tear down his love for Christ, to weaken his desire, to please the Lord, but do everything I can to uphold him. Or her. So one, the reason we are not to put stumbling blocks in front of one another is that we are to love one another. And two, we are to be humbled by the cross of our Savior and to recognize that everyone in here who knows and loves the Savior, we are his servants. He is our judge. We are humbled beneath his cross. So we are not to put a stumbling block in front of one another. But then 3, verse 16. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. Let's go back to the wine illustration. 
So scripture has a very clear two-pronged message on wine and beer and strong drink. On the one hand, they are gifts of God. The scriptures say wine makes glad the heart of God, and Jesus made a huge gift of several hundred gallons, not of the finest Welch's grape juice ever seen in the land, but of the best tasting wine there ever was. And maybe one day we'll have the opportunity to taste that in heaven. That would be a good thing. But, on the other hand, Scripture says you better not, with any use of alcohol, become drunk, lose self-control, put yourself in a position where you are freer to sin because your body is freer and your inhibitions are worn off by alcohol. You understand, there's a very thin line here. So we need to be very careful. My line is not very wide at all. But I'm not saying my line has to be your line, because if I did that, my conscience would then be tyrannizing over your conscience. But the point here is clear. It's a gift. It is also a danger. Because for drunkards, Scripture is very clear. 2 Corinthians 6, no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of God, none. And that goes for those who abuse substances. It doesn't matter if he is a nice old drunk, remember, like Otis Campbell on the Andy Griffin show. No drunkard will enter the kingdom of God, not one. Now, repentant drunkard. Who are, no, who are no longer drunkards, can enter the kingdom of heaven. But no practicing, unrepentant drunk will ever go to heaven. Just like no unrepentant, practicing viewer of pornography, or an adulterer, or an abuser of his wife, or a wife who is disrespectful to her husband, will never go to heaven. It's very important to see these two prongs here. So if the strong man is parading, hey, we're having this party, and there'll be a lot of the church attending, and we'll have wine and beer, we would love for you to come. Wait a minute. What's a good wine that makes glad the hearts of men can become an evil spoken of? People could say of that church, all they care about is drinking. Every time they get together, if there isn't a bottle open, no one has a good time. You can understand why Paul says, listen, if you have liberty, fine. It's a good thing. Have it to yourself before God. Enjoy God's good gifts in moderation. But don't let the good liberty that Jesus has purchased for us be of no avail because it becomes for you a badge of pride or honor where, we, where the real men are the real women of the church. Don't let it become an occasion where something God has made good to be spoken of as something bad. So 
we should be drawing from one another, encouraging one another. If we need to talk about these kinds of things, and we often do talk about them, remember, you have two ears and one mouth, so be quick to hear and slow to speak. When there's a disagreement, say, I love you, brother, and always see behind that person the crucified Savior. So, I'm not going to speak evil of a dear brother whom I know loves the Lord. I may disagree with him on a particular issue, and I may even disagree strongly with him on the issue, but I'm going to respect him, and I'm going to walk in love with him. And if I hold to something that's different, and I believe it is liberty God has given me, I will hold it to myself before God. But I am not going to let my abuse of it, my pride respecting it, to be an occasion where people could call the good things Jesus has given us evil. But there's even a higher consideration yet, verse 17. This is the highest. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. What? Doth the Lord require of thee, O man, but to love justice, to do judgment, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God? Here is a New Testament counterpart to Micah 6.18. How do we know that God is in our midst? Because we brew the best coffee here? Because our church has the best soloists? Because we have this, because we practice this, because everyone here makes this particular choice for Christian education or that particular choice. Paul says here, the way we know God is in our midst is certainly not that we are bickering and dividing over things that are not what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15.3, things of first importance. And meat and drink would be first century's example of these. What is God's kingdom? It is his rule. It is his presence with us. We have Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus, God with us, the eternal son of God, fully man, two natures, one person joined together, our mediator, our savior. He rules over that kingdom and he brings that kingdom to bear in our lives by righteousness. He works in us his Psalm 48. I delight to do thy will. So is the kingdom of God within you? Paul asked them and he asked us, do you love righteousness? Do you love, in other words, to obey God? If we do, of course, that should make us good listeners also. Because it may be that Daniel has learned something about obeying God that I haven't yet figured out. So I need to listen to him. What? But I know I'm right. I wouldn't have this opinion if it wasn't the best one there is. No, we're all servants who sit at the feet of our master. There is only one set of feet we kiss, and it is his. There is only one set of feet that we wash with our tears and wipe with our hair, and it is his. 
If we love him, we're going to be willing to listen to one another, to be teachable, meek, humble. Why? Because I want to learn true righteousness. I want God to be in my family, Christian fathers. I want there to be righteousness here. Sometimes as fathers, we wait for lightning in a bottle. Maybe something will happen that will bring change. Righteousness. Do you want the kingdom, the power, its grace, the love? Do you want Zephaniah 3.17? The Lord your God is in the midst of you, mighty to save. His love is set. He will rejoice over you with singing. Do you want that kingdom to come into your life and into your family? Here is a much surer proof of it than what people's opinions are on secondary things, and that is righteousness. Are we obeying God? Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Why do we believe in Jesus? Because he is the holy, obedient one. How can Jesus save us? Because he is the righteous one. So we are joined to him and his kingdom comes into our lives. And then he brings his righteousness. Justifying righteousness, yes. That we are right with God. But here, I think the reference is more to practical obedience, personal obedience to God. Now, he mentions peace. Again, we have a definitive peace. If you know the Savior today, God is smiling at you. you. He is your Father, and He loves you. If you have trusted, not in yourself, not in your decisions, not even in your trust, but you have trusted in the Son of God, Lord, you are my only righteousness. Your blood is my only cleansing. I have no hope in life or in death, but that you, the Son of God, were crucified for me and rose for me. Then, and only then, are you at peace with God. Now you may say, well, my family is not at peace. There's a lot of disturbance and turbulence, and I have other things that, okay, that may be there. But there is a definitive peace. Why? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I will tell you that a firm sense of this is what oftentimes most promotes peace among ourselves. Let me explain. I know I'm at peace with God. Now let's think of everything about ourselves. How do I really know I really have this peace? I've still got sin in my life. and I'm not sure. I sometimes wonder if I'm even a Christian. I've gone through all that. I know we struggle with these things. We've got feet of clay. But then we go back and we look at Jesus again and say, wait a minute. It's not my decision. It's not my performance. It's not how good a father I am or how good a mother I am or how good a churchman or churchwoman I am. That makes me at peace with God. It is Jesus Christ 
alone the righteousness, the righteous one, his obedience, his blood shed for us. When I cast myself on him and look to him and say, Son of God, have mercy upon me, it is just the same as the children of Israel when they were bitten by snakes for their rebellion, and they looked at the snake on the pole, and they were cured. And some of them may have looked at it a hundred times and been bitten a hundred times, but they were cured every time they looked at the snake on the pole, which was a shadow of Jesus Christ. So if we are looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will have peace with God. Now, that does something to us when we get a hold of it. One, excuse me, one, I can stop this guilt manipulation of my own soul. Am I good enough? Have I been faithful enough? Have I been obedient enough? No, no, never, ever, ever. But Jesus has. He has given this name in Ephesians 2.14, our peace. And in Isaiah, Prince of Peace. So when we embrace his peace, it does something to us in terms of how we treat one another. Wait a minute. Can I really get too upset with this person? Now, I'm not thinking, well... You know, I can love and be at peace with Mormons, even though they believe in a false god. No, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about doctrine like the Trinity or substitutionary atonement. I'm not talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm talking about the secondary issues of ceremony and ritual that oftentimes have disturbed the church. So am I going to go to war over secondary issues with my brother when one day I'm going to sit with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb when we are both clinging to the cross? I mean, it's hard to hold on to that cross with one hand and punch someone who disagrees with you with the other. The image of that is ugly. And of course, it's extreme. And it's like I'm crucifying Jesus again on the altar of my pride. Because everyone needs to agree with me and see my view of things on these issues of lesser importance. You see, when we are humbled by the peace that Jesus has brought to us, we are approachable. We're willing to be dealt with and to deal, to confront and be confronted, and to do it peaceably. And that is oftentimes within the church where the real issue lies. It's not the disagreement. Just get used to that. We are supposed to strive for oneness of mind and to think the same thing. But in this life, brothers and sisters, that is merely a goal. We have more or less of it at certain times, but we're going to have to keep working for it our entire lives. So the real issue, since I know there are going to be differences of opinions because there are different backgrounds and education and personalities, so what's most important is that I show the love of Christ 
when I'm talking about these differences with other people, with my wife, with my brothers and sisters, with my husband, with my children, with my extended family, with my neighbors. And then Paul says, enjoy. Do you want to know that God is in your midst? Here's a good test for this particular body. Is God in our midst? Are we pursuing righteousness? Do we want to obey God so much that even if I really think I need to be doing this, but a brother says, hey, did you look at this scripture about that? Did you know this? Yeah, maybe I need to think about that in peace. Even if I disagree with this brother, he is such a good guy. And he is and has been under the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. Now, husbands, have you ever been in the heat of a debate with your wife and suddenly you look at her and think, boy, she sure is beautiful when she's angry. There is a fire and a gleam in her eyes and that beauty just comes out. So you need to think of that example the next time you are debating with a brother or a sister, and that fire comes out. Jesus is in there, and he's given that brother or that sister a passion. So I'm just going to listen. I don't want to do anything to exacerbate the situation. I want to learn. I want to enjoy my Savior's peace and then his joy. Think about what God has done for us. I've talked to some people over the years, and I've asked them, what is your view of the church as a whole? Some have answered, bitter, <coughs> divided, prideful, angry. They always seem to be marketing themselves, proclaiming we're number one. So it's most likely they are not thinking those Christians are a happy lot. Yet others have said, those Christians... Man, they're always talking so nicely about other people. I was talking to my Presbyterian neighbor the other day, and he was falling all over himself talking about his Baptist friends whom he loves so much in the Lord. Talk about putting the United Nations out of business and saving us at least a trillion dollars. That would be great if the church was like that all the time. If only that is what the church was known for. But that is what the Holy Spirit says, Paul, here, for that is where the kingdom of God is when you have this joy. Some people will say, oh boy, I really felt good here, God here today. I've just got so much joy. Well, did the music that made you joyful, did it encourage obedience to God? Did it encourage you to celebrate the peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ? That is what brings forth joy, not the music itself. In other words, joy doesn't come from within here. I know that's the message of the world. If you're going to find joy, you've got to find it within. Beloved, that is wrong. It is deadly and it is dangerous. Joy comes 
from God. With him, it says in scripture, is fullness of joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. Jesus said, my joy, my peace, I give to you. So, more, so the more we practice righteousness, and the more we practice the peace our Savior won for us, the more joy we will have, and there will be less bickering. Does that mean we will never disagree? No, but boy, isn't it nice to give each other, as Peter said, the kiss of peace, the kiss of charity. Even if we're in the midst of debating, Instead of saying, man, I'm so mad I couldn't convince them that I was right and they were wrong. Say, boy, I sure am glad I could talk to my brother today. I sure do love him. I'm going to walk with him in heaven forever because Christ died for that brother just as he did me. What Paul is really getting at here is, that they've got this controlled view of secondary issues of preferences or scruple that are not taught so clearly in Scripture. That everyone is not going to see eye to eye on them. But when we get a little bit of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, over holy, over zealous for things that are not at the heart of the Christian faith, rather than these things, if you want to be zealous about something, If you want our congregation to grow, be zealous about these things. Be zealous about righteousness. Psalm 119.1 says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. So let's be zealous about obeying God, about His word. Let's be joyful in obeying the Lord. Let's celebrate the peace that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not, well, I came to Christ 30 years ago, and I have not once talked about peace since then. I mean, what's so exciting about peace? The holy, holy God. We are at peace with Him. And that is a central part of the gospel. He loves us. He sings over us. He rejoices over us. His love is set upon us. Talk about that. Talk about the peace that we have and then build on it. That is why we have to be at peace with each other. That's why we can't pull each other's hair like little children and steal from each other and say, mine, mine, mine. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he said, Yours, yours, yours. I take what is mine and I give it to you. And then we have joy in the Lord. You might say, well, my circumstances are awful. Some Christian circumstances are. And we do go through crying times. There's no doubt about it. We go through dying times. But God is joy. And if you walk close with him, even in the worst times, and you are pouring out your heart to him, and I hope each one of you have felt this before, you're going through a really hard time, and you cry out to the Lord and cast your cares on him, and he gives you a sense of peace. Lord, you've got my life in your hands. I don't understand what's happening to me. 
I don't know why I'm going through this, but thank you so much that your heaven and your throne is open to me. You who made me, you are open to me. Me who is so frail, so weak, so sinful. There is my joy. Jesus went to the cross like that for me. So don't ever tell me you're going through too much to be joyful. I can't believe you. Now I can believe we struggle because I have. But I can't believe you can't be joyful. Why? Because Hebrews 12.3 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And no one in here has gone through anything even approaching the sorrows of death and the pains of hell that our Savior went through on that cross. And yet, Scripture said there was joy because he knew what? That he was obeying his Father. Do you know Jesus was already dying in the garden? This cup is killing me. Already his skin tissue is thinned out under the weight of the horror of it all. And his blood vessels started to leak. This wasn't just a nice symbolic way of saying he was really going through a rough time. The anticipation of judgment and hell was killing him already, humanly speaking. And yet he went to the cross with joy. So moms... I pray for you all the time. Your little brood looks great on Sundays, but you've got to deal with them Monday through Saturday. And I know it's hard work, but remember if Jesus could have joy going to the cross, you can have joy in obeying God when you feel like you're being torn in every conceivable direction and there's no time for you. Jesus understands. Be faithful. Seek to obey. Dad's the same thing. Young people, the same thing. Oh, but if I only had this and my job wasn't so demanding, if people or my parents or my boss just didn't expect so much of me, then I could be more joyful. Joyful is not found in the workplace or in the school or in people liking you. These are really hollow feelings. As a Christian, joy comes in knowing you are a child of the King. In knowing the Son of God gave Himself that you could be free from the condemnation of your sin and an eternity in hell. And the incredible thing is that when we have joy through the Lord Jesus Christ, God is pleased with us and loves us abundantly. Now that is hard for me to deal with. God loves me. He loves me with all my warts and my sins. All of the times that I have spit in his face. He loves me because of what he has done for me and you through his son. So Paul concludes here and he says, listen, do these things and you are serving Christ. It's like, all right, the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness, peace and joy.
So let me just ratchet this up one more step. This is the way we serve Christ. This is the way we love him who loved us and gave himself for us. Remember when the apostles asked, who's going to be greater, Lord? Hey, Lord, can Peter sit on your right hand and me, John, sit on your left hand? I mean, who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus says, you fools, blind men, do you think there's joy in personal elevation? No, there's joy in serving me. And this is something that ought to absolutely trump every other consideration and difference in every body of believers. And that is, the one desire on everyone's heart is, I want to serve Christ. I want to please Him. I want to follow Him. I don't want to follow along my sinfulness. I don't want anyone else following me in my sin. I want to follow Him. How many times did Jesus say, follow me, follow me, follow me? Why? Because He is life. Because He is joy. He's peace. He's righteousness. He's strength to obey when we don't have any strength in ourselves. He is peace when all circumstances are topsy-turvy and upside down. He is joy when we just want to sit down and get in a huddle on the floor and cry. But I am serving Christ in this who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul really comes right down here and says, so if you don't love each other, and if you're going to judge each other about these secondary issues, the deepest problem is verse 17. You are trampling God's kingdom. But even worse, verse 18, you are not serving Christ. You're not considering it your greatest joy. I want to follow Jesus. I want to obey Jesus. I want to praise Jesus. Well, let's just take Mary, for example. So Mary and others made a feast for Jesus. Then he came back to Bethany after he raised Lazarus from the dead. You can read this this evening in John 11. So they made a feast and Martha served, which leads me to believe, based on some of the textual issues here, that it wasn't at her house, because there would have been no point to emphasize that Martha served, had it been at her house. So Martha served, and Mary's there. In the middle of all those people who came, honestly, John said, to see Lazarus. I mean, wouldn't you go to see a dead man who had been in a grave a week earlier, and now he's eating fried chicken? I'd want to see him. Not as a circus show, but hey, God has really done something here. So here's Mary, and she's weeping. Martha went to meet Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus, who loves his people so much, his soul is just unhinged. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's not crying because Lazarus was dead. He was crying at death and what it has done to us. So here's Mary. She comes up with the most expensive thing she has, a big bottle of expensive perfume and a clay decorative box. She breaks it and she poured it over Jesus' feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. Now listen carefully. 
This is why the church in the United States looks like it does today. It has nothing to do with who's in the White House. It has nothing to do so much with who's running the seminaries. It is because at some point over time in you and me, we stopped having as the passion of our lives, Jesus Christ, and to take whatever we have, whatever gift, no matter how little or how big, and lay it at his feet who loved me. And I don't care who sees me humble there for Christ. I don't care if people think, well, he's not right, and I don't think he can even defend his position. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is him who loved me and gave himself for me, and I want to wash his feet. I want to kiss him. Young people, if you know Jesus like that, then the world is going to lose its hold upon you. The only reason there's even such a thing as teenage identity crisis is because there is a crisis of Christ lovelessness. That is the reason. The only reason men in the church look at pornography is there is a crisis of Christ loveliness. There is a lack of devotion and of commitment and of consecration. I know these are big words. So let me just boil it down to not loving Jesus for what he has done for me. That's why I've turned to the bottle, to drugs. Not me personally, sorry. That's why I'm not nice to my wife and I treat her like a second-class citizen. That's why I'm not submissive to my husband and I speak to him sharply. That's why I'm not too interested in being with God's people. All things that plague the church. That's why I'm not interested in sound doctrine. And really, sound doctrine is not an end unto itself, but it shows us the fullness of Christ we love in us. So Paul concludes all of this. The relatively small issues in the church with the biggest issue of all, the kingdom of God and serving Christ. So my prayer for us is that we come to want to serve this Jesus. Righteousness, peace, and joy is found in the Holy Ghost. So let me encourage you. Don't go home thinking, we better start doing these things. It will never happen because it's only in the Holy Ghost. We can't produce righteousness. So the crisis of Christ's lovelessness is really, I need the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is who unites me to Jesus so I can serve God in my home, in my business, in my work, without complaining. And so that I can love my brothers and sisters in the body without Arguing. I need the spirit of Jesus. I need the spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead to raise me up. So what do we do? To get the Holy Spirit. In Luke 11, Jesus said, If you who, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Do you mean that's all I have to do? Okay, dear God, give me the Holy Spirit. Amen. That didn't work, did it? No, because we have to, before we are ever going to be brought to the place where we really pray for the Holy Spirit in a way that honors God, is if we are emptied of ourselves, 
become seriously displeased with ourselves and realize, Lord, I can't love my wife. I can't be at peace with my parents. I can't have joy. I've tried all these things. I'm like the woman that had the bleeding for 12 years and she spent everything she had on physicians. That's like us. We spend everything we have. Maybe I'll go on this extravagant vacation or I'll try these pills or I'll try this facelift or this reduction or this addition and we're finally brought to the end of our rope and realize all along what we were told at the very beginning of the course and that is come to Jesus. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Where do we get the strength to do that? In the Holy Spirit. So I ask the Lord, Lord, give me your Holy Spirit. I want to obey you. I want to have this peace. Not only the objective peace, you know, the holy God and me, the sinner reconciled. But I want to have peace with my brothers Peace with my wife, my husband, my children. Lord, please give this to us. Work it in us by your Holy Spirit. I want to have joy. I don't want to be known by others as the Christian that never seemed to smile, just sad looks all the time, wearing the weight of the world on my shoulders. I don't want to be like that. Somehow, Lord, when you were carrying the cross up the hill, You looked at the daughters of Jerusalem and said, don't cry for me, cry for yourselves. Somehow on the cross you smiled at your mother and said, John, take care of her. Lord, I want that joy, I want that peace, I want that strength, but I can't produce it. I've tried all these various ways, all these formulas, I can't do it, but you can Because you are the Christ of righteousness, the Christ of peace, the Christ of joy. Would you be my Christ, my Savior, be my Lord? Ask him, trust him, his promise, and receive him because he doesn't say. Only if you ask me a thousand times. He just says, ask me. Fill your need with me. Come to me. I'll I'll never cast you out. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, and I will never cast you out. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the promises of your word. We pray that you would work love in us, a love for you and a love for one another. Help us to be the men, women, young people we have been called by you to be. Bring your kingdom to bear upon us your righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost because we are so sinful we can't produce these things we need you to work these things in us and make us your kingdom builders ready to fight the good fight for you under all circumstances for your sake amen